Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. I'm Greg Sesek from the Programs Department here at the Pratt Library. On the table in the back is our September-October edition of Compass, which is the library's newsletter. Um, there are lots of programs, um, practically one each night in both of those months. Uh, if you don't receive it and would like to receive it either by email or through the mail, there's a sign-up sheet in the back. We're very glad to have Jess Rowe here tonight. His first book, The Train to Lu Wu, a collection of short stories set in Hong Kong, was published in 2005. In 2006, it was shortlisted for the Penn Hemingway Award. In 2007, he was named Best Young American Novelist by Granta. His second collection of stories, Nobody Ever Gets Lost, was published by Five Chapters Books in February 2011. His first novel, Your Face and Mine, which we will talk about tonight, was published by Riverhead Books. His stories have appeared in The Atlantic, Tin House, Conjunctions, Boston Review, Plowshares, Granta, American Short Fiction, Three Penny Review, Ontario Review, Harvard Review, and elsewhere, and have been anthologized three times in the Best American Short Stories, and have won two Pushcart Prizes and a Penn O. Henry Award. He has also received an NEA Fellowship in Fiction and a Whiting Writers Award. His nonfiction and criticism often appear in the New York Times Book Review, Book Forum, Three Penny Review, and the Boston Review, among other venues. Jess is an associate professor of English at the College of New Jersey and a member of the international faculty of the MFA program at the City University of Hong Kong. He lives in New York City as a student of Zen and an ordained Dharma teacher. Jess, thanks for coming this evening. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for coming out tonight. I really appreciate it. Um, one thing that was missing in that biography, because it's sort of not in my standard biography, is that I went to high school in Baltimore. Uh, I lived in, up in Roland Park for four years, um, and uh, Baltimore made a huge uh, made a huge mark on my life. Um, but I'm not a native. Sort of, I sort of came here from elsewhere, and went elsewhere. And uh, but something about Baltimore got under my skin, ha 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 ha. And uh, that's uh, and 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 that's really where this book comes out of. So the first thing I'm going to read is just a, a paragraph, a couple of paragraphs about uh, from the point of view of my narrator, who, like me, is somebody who uh, came to who lived in Baltimore for a while in high school, and then went elsewhere, and. Uh, uh, a white a white person of privilege and someone who has a very uh, ambivalent relationship with with Baltimore as a place. So this is him. He's at this point he's driving. Um, he's uh, he's uh, how shall I say this? He's driving from his apartment, which is up by Union Memorial Hospital, um, in sort of Charles Village, and he's driving down towards Harbor Place. And this is just sort of his overview of the city. The Baltimore I know runs on a north-south axis along three parallel streets, Charles, Calvert, and St. Paul. Beginning at the city line, the anonymous ranch house suburbs of Towson give way to the ring of neighborhoods where I lived out my adolescence, Mount Washington, Roland Park, Homeland. 
There's the bizarre Art Deco Cathedral of Mary Our Queen and the Mason's Bumi Temple and the enormous empty St. Mary's Seminary and then farther down the anonymous faceless stone and brick mansions of Guilford, then the Hopkins main campus cut off from the streets by a forested median on St. Paul Street and the lacrosse stadium on University Parkway, which didn't actually exist when I was in high school. It was just a field. Now it's a, now it's a stadium. Until this point, the city is not really a city so much as an agglomeration of villages, leafy, prosperous-seeming, and carefully composed. At 33rd Street, which leads east only a few blocks to Memorial Stadium, Baltimore proper begins, first as a long corridor of row houses broken by large avenues, then the canyon formed by Interstate 83 as it cuts southeast just below Penn Station. Below that, Mount Royal clustered around the Washington Memorial Obelisk, and finally the gleaming steel and glass bank buildings just before the Inner Harbor and its shopping arcades and Camden Yards, the new baseball stadium, which to me still looks like an architect's drawing or a hologram. I moved here when I was 12 and left for college at 18, and when college was over there was China and Wendy, then graduate school and May May and WBUR, and in the space of 15 years I only came back five or six times, each time only when I couldn't, when I couldn't possibly avoid it. I did everything I could not to come home for longer than a week, and then finally, just before I married Wendy, my parents retired and moved to New Paltz, and I thought briefly that I would never have to see the city again. Not because I hated Baltimore, not at all, but because, as one of my friends put it, it was a place to be from, not a place to belong to. When I arrived at Amherst, I realized within five minutes that it was pointless to try to explain to a girl from Rhine, New Hampshire, what it meant to go to an illegal warehouse show on North Avenue, or why it mattered that my sweater came from Don's discount in Fells Point, or why I had a collection of Polish saint cards taped to my wall when I wasn't even Catholic. I felt, for the first time, provincial. Everyone had a hometown, a story, a past, and it could matter if you wanted it to. If, for example, you lived at 88th and Park Avenue and your father was the director of the Guggenheim, or not. And I chose, as nearly all of us chose, not. I wanted to be denatured, detached, to luxuriate in my cocoon and emerge an utterly different butterfly. Everyone I knew from home had done the same. To be fair, we weren't exactly locals to begin with. Mostly our parents were academics, teachers, lawyers, scientists, who'd made a life here more or less arbitrarily, whose concerns were global, and who, who viewed Baltimore and its problems with generic concern, not civic pride. When I saw my friends at Thanksgivings and Christmases, it was as if years, not months, had passed, and we stayed mostly in one another's houses as if the city might not want to take us back. By then, I'd lost touch with Martin completely. I last saw him, I'm remembering now, on February 12th, 1993, the day of Alan's funeral. Alan is their best friend from high school. And that was the first time in months the band had broken up and he had all but disappeared, barely even coming to school. I assumed that his life had gone on, as all of our lives did. I assumed that he disappeared into this new and large and atomized world. It never occurred to me that he might have stayed in Baltimore. Martin, the person he refers to, is the man in the novel who's his childhood best friend, who's white. And then uh, at the beginning of the novel, Kelly, when he first comes back to Baltimore, encounters Martin as an adult black man uh, and is astonished by this transformation and full of questions. And and Martin explains to him that he's had uh, racial reassignment surgery. Uh, He went to Thailand and had racial reassignment surgery uh, and was transformed from a from a white man into a into a black man. So, I'm going to read 
um, another section early in the novel when Kelly has had this revelation. He's met Martin for the first time. Martin has explained to him, I went through this transformation. I believed I was a black man inside. I went to Thailand. I had this procedure done. And Kelly, at this point in the novel, is really just sort of, is just sort of stupefied. He can't believe what he's read. He, I mean, he can't believe what he's heard. He can't, uh, he can't process it. And so he sort of stops the, he stops the narrative in a way and just has this, he takes a moment in this chapter, um, as white people sometimes do, to just sort of explain where they're coming from when it comes to race. And it's sort of in the form of a confession, as it often is, um, a kind of a confession. So this is, this is, this is, the, this is the confession. Chapter 7. I'm going to say something here that should come as no surprise at least not to those of my generation, born after the civil rights movement had shrunk to pages 263 to 267 of American panoramas and raised, for the most part, in the 80s, watching Bill Cosby sell pudding pops on TV. My education in blackness and the experience of black people in America began one hot summer afternoon in 1989 in sticky floored Theater C of the Chestnut Hill Mall 13 with Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. Of course, I had heard rap before, I knew in a kind of academic way what a crack addict was, and I knew a great deal about Martin Luther King. My parents' first date was at the March on Washington in 1963. But in the world I lived in before I moved to Baltimore, Newton, Massachusetts, not Boston, unless you count the occasional trip to the aquarium or Fanua Hall, the only black people I saw regularly were babysitters and maids. My parents were ardent Democrats, classic Northeastern waspy liberals, who nonetheless characteristically chose to live in a neighborhood populated with people exactly like themselves, plus a margin of Chinese, Indian Thai, and garden variety reform Ashkenazim for the schools, the parks, the playgrounds, the excellent restaurants. Of course, it wasn't Alabama. It wasn't 1955. There were always a few black kids, a photogenic sprinkling. Tiffany and Wesley Roberts, whose father was Duane Roberts, the Celtics point guard, were one year ahead of me at Passingbrook Elementary. Tiffany was grasshopper-legged, a natural sprinter, an indefatigable four-square champion. Wesley spent recesses under the pines at the far end of the soccer field, trading stickers, buttons, garbage pail kids, baseball cards, Dungeons and Dragons imaginary weapons, whatever currency of the moment. That was where I came to know him briefly in third grade before his dad was traded to the Supersonics. He sat hunched over, legs folded, stretching out the hem of his long t-shirt like a table, displaying some treasure, a folder of Reggie Jackson cards from every season, a Don Mattingly rookie card, a mint tops pack of the 1979 Pirates, and daring the rest of us to make an offer. It wasn't fun, exactly, being so utterly outmatched, but Wesley knew how to work the margins, trading cards he didn't need for the best we had to offer. He stared into space over our shoulders, reciting statistics in a listless deadpan voice, showing why his cards were always worth more, had more long-term potential. He used words like investment and dividends. Today we might give him a diagnosis, Asperger's, mild autism, social anxiety disorder, but no one at the time, as far as I can recall, saw anything wrong. Never did anyone in that circle refer to him as black. Creatures of instinct, we didn't care about the color of his skin or the content of his character. We cared only about his stuff. Only later did it occur to me that that was why he sought us out and perhaps why he became, 
I Googled him once in idle curiosity a few years ago, a venture capitalist seeding startups and then selling them to Microsoft. He's grown into his looks now. He and his father have a foundation together that runs after-school sports programs in Seattle. This was the life I was raised to have, racially speaking, the life my parents had post-1973 when they left Back Bay for the suburbs, the life of a capital G good, capital W white, capital P person. I was meant to have a few select black friends, peers, confidants, individuals, a number of acquaintances, business associates, secretaries, hygienists, a few charities to which I would give generously as much as possible, and a broad, sympathetic, detached view of the continuing struggles of African Americans to achieve the long-delayed goals of full civic participation, low birth rates, ascension to the middle class, hiring equity, educational parity, and so on, so, 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 on, on, on. I was supposed to live with the frisson of guilt that comes from owning an expensive, elaborate security system, and to mention at parties that rates of incarceration for black males are six times the national average. I was supposed to organize for Obama and own at least 10 separate items of Obama paraphernalia and proudly display my Yes We Did postcard on my refrigerator for all of 2009 and 2010 and feel that slow fading flush of warmth and exaltation as if someone had reached out and grasped my hand and held it a squeeze as a substitute for an embrace. This was the life until a few weeks ago that I thought I was having. I should have known better. 1989, a number, another summer, sound of the funky drummer. What did I hear that first time when Donald Harrison's rendition of Lift Every Voice ended and Fight the Power roared to life in a cacophony of scratches, samples, and found noise before that first deep bass hit that nearly lifted me out of my chair? Something like the screeching of brakes, something like a jet plane taking off. That's what the bomb squad sounded like to a 14-year-old in 1989 who was used to the tinny, Casio-looped beats and 80s rap. Even before the story began, the credits were a body blow. The sheer brightness of the colors, the insistent, defiant, angry sidewalk dancing of Rosie Perez in a pink miniskirt and tights, in shiny boxer's trunks, bobbing and weaving. Everything that came after was a little after the fact of that first song. Freedom of speech is freedom of death. Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant shit to me. I was listening. I was paying attention. It wasn't long after that that the few black kids at Newton South Middle started wearing t-shirts that said, it's a black thing, you wouldn't understand. By this time, I had graduated from the haze of childhood and had begun hanging out whenever I could in Harvard Square, in particular at Newberry Comics, the epicenter of cool. My father was just then negotiating the terms of his new job at Black & Decker in Baltimore. He was, is, an electrical engineer who invents power-saving devices for small appliances, and I knew my world was shifting, that Newton was already history, over, and I started turning my attention to magazines, Spin, Rolling Stone, Alternative Press, Maximum Rock and Roll, Vibe, The Source, and it was in Spin that I read the interview with Chuck D that contained the sentence, white liberals aren't our salvation, they're the problem. It had never occurred to me that I was somebody else's problem. With Do the Right Thing came Public Enemy. After Public Enemy came, uh, came NWA. And at the same moment, the Native Tongues, De La Soul, Tribe Called Quest, X-Clan, Del the Funky Homo Sapien, The Far Side, Black Sheep, Arrested Development, Ice-T, Ice Cube, Onyx. In the early 90s, hip-hop was everywhere but invisible, still controversial, still not quite accepted as music, still hardly on the radio, and therefore an indispensable part of a teenager's education. By the time I was 16, I was buying bootleg tapes of every new album, $5 a pop, 
and I could repeat whole songs, whole sides of albums. It was the omega to punk's alpha, the nastiness to our earnestness. End justifies the means, that's the system, so I don't celebrate no bullshit Thanksgiving. I listened to it hypnotically, miming the gestures in traffic on the way to school, spraying my imag- imaginary Mac-10 through the windshield. We're the number one crew in the area. Make a move for your gat and I'll bury you. I'm sorry, it sounds bad, but I do, you know, it's, it's, what can I do? This shit is pathetic, my friend Ayala Kaufman said once, a year later, when I was giving her a ride to school. She was biracial, though it was easy to miss. With a mop of brown curls, a nose ring, and an Indian print blouse, she could easily have been any other Rebecca, Aviva, or Dasi. Hindus, Mexijus, Sephardi ex-kibbutzniks. At Willow, we had them all. Willow is the name of his high school. Her father had disappeared when she was a baby, leaving nothing to her, not even his name. And her, Mary, her mother had remarried Ira Kaufman, a balding, kindly reform rabbi with fishy eyes. I mean, she said, I get it. I get De La Soul. Everybody loves De La Soul. But this is like looking at Hustler. It's gross. And it's grosser still because it's you. Nobody meant this for you. Or if they did, it's just a classic retread minstrel show. Look at the bad black man. You're getting played. I can't believe you would pay money for this shit. I didn't. Well, not much, anyway. And you think that makes it okay? Just because you're not listening to it doesn't mean it's not out there, I said. Wouldn't you rather know? What, is this supposed to be my direct line from the ghetto? Chuck D says hip-hop is the black world CNN. You're not the black world, she said. You're not black, don't you get it? And listening to this shit doesn't change that. It just makes you a parasite. It would be one thing if you actually knew any black people, and I don't count. That's really fair, I said. You get to be the authority, but yet you don't count. You don't get to decide what's fair, she said. Don't you understand? She ejected the tape before I could stop her and flipped it into the back seat among the subway wrappers and 7-Eleven coffee cups, the broken microphone stand, and the guitar string envelopes. You get to shut up, she said. That's your special job. You get to not have rights for a change. Shut up and go away and leave black people alone for once. I didn't listen. Or maybe in some sense I did. At Willow, in place of community service, we had what we called volunteer jobs assigned by the principal's office, six hours a week minimum. And the black people I knew in any true sense, any real recognition, any actual conversation, were all from my VJ shifts downtown, soup kitchen, sophomore year, food pantry, junior year, community health clinic, senior year. Mostly my supervisors were solemn, tight-mouthed men, ex-cons, Vietnam vets, halfway house residents who hardly bothered to learn my name. But there were always others who asked why I wore my hair that way, who wanted to know how many hours of community service I'd been sentenced to and what I'd done to deserve it, who offered me menthol cigarettes, which I graciously, nauseously accepted, who told me something about doing a month in the hole at Lorton or being shot out of, out of a helicopter at Quezon. And then there was James, a category of his own. James supervised a whole crew of prep school do-gooders, PSDGs, that was his term, at the Belinda Matthews Memorial Food Pantry on Saturday mornings, teaching us how to process 100 pounds of cast-off lettuce, how to stack boxes of government cheese, how to load a shopping bag so it wouldn't split. He stood a head taller than most of us, 6'5", in an army jacket with a shining bald dome, a crocheted skull cap, and a silvery soul patch like an aging hero from a Melvin Van Peebles movie. He told us he'd been in the same city college class with Kurt Schmoke, then the mayor. After that, he turned down a scholarship to Howard, traveled the country playing bass in an R&B band, and spent some time with the People's Temple in California years before Jonestown. But I knew even then, he said, more than once, I knew that Jim Jones was a crazy motherfucker. It was well known that he would screw anything that moved, anything that came within 10 feet, man or woman. 
That was how he did it, you know. Everyone felt dirty. Everybody was compromised. Closer you get, the more compromised. So I packed my bags and got out of that scene. And then what? Alan once asked him. We were on the same shift in the fall of our junior year. We'd go straight from pitching Rotten Tomatoes to band practice. What'd you do then after Jim Jones? How'd you get back to Baltimore? James palmed a cantaloupe from a waxboard crate, sniffed it like a chef looking for the peak of ripeness. Son, he said, looking straight at Alan, I did cocaine. Nothing but cocaine for 15 years. You hear? Bought, sold, sniffed, ate, shot up, smoked, stuck it in my gums, stuck it up my ass once I was that desperate. Took it into prison with me. Took it right up to the moment I left. 15 years in the White Mountains, six of them in jail. Then I found God, and here we are. I guess we should take that as a warning, Alan said. No, James said, and he coughed politely to keep from laughing. I'm not here as a warning, not to you. He was a Muslim, though I rarely discussed it. Not Nation of Islam, but NBIM, which he, want, he told me once stood for New Baltimore Integrated Mosque, a special congregation where Arabs and Pakistanis and black people all worshipped together. Occasionally, if I arrived early enough, I found him doing morning prayers outside in the empty lot next to the food pantry's row house. Inshallah, he always said, when we talked about how many bags we'd distribute that day. And Alan and I started doing it too, as a joke first, and then without thinking. Inshallah, we could sell 15 t-shirts. Inshallah, if you get into Wesleyan. It happened to be the same moment that I came to know James, that I read the autobiography of Malcolm X for the first time, and came on the rapper Paris who referred casually to blue-eyed devils and sons of Yakub, as if talking about his Uncle Bill from Indiana. At the Black Hat bookstore on Reed Street, I found copies of The Final Call and the new African Party newsletter and, and sat reading for an entire Sunday afternoon, one column of tiny print after another, mesmerized by explanations of how the downfall of white America, with KKK, could be predicted by the phases of the sun, how school health clinics and Planned Parenthood were agents of genocide, how black people could use shea butter to boost their natural immunity to AIDS. There was something refreshing about being called a devil. This was in 1991, at the very peak of the crack wars, when Baltimore was murder capital for the first time. I'd just gotten my license, and I drove myself alone, or sometimes with Alan, down to the food pantry twice or three times a week, and the fact of being independent changed everything I saw as if I had to own the city for the first time, having to find my own parking spaces in it. It wasn't a matter of fear, though I carried mace with me everywhere, wore my wallet and keys on a biker chain, and checked the back seat and trunk of the car religiously as carjackers were known to put a gun to your head from behind as you drove. What astonished me was how easily I could slip past the box hedges and pin oaks of Roland Park, the Victorians and Colonials and Tudors prim and quiet, and into the corridors, the bombed-out storefronts, the vacants, the dealers in puffy jackets standing sentry on every corner, the Korean liquor stores with armor grates and triple-thick glass in front of the register. This was a drive of ten minutes. It is still, come to think of it, a drive of ten minutes. This geography, I thought, was a crime. Someone had given me a postcard of Proudhon that I taped in my locker. Property is theft. How could it be anything else? How could I be anything but other than a criminal by the fact of my pimply existence? I'll stop there. Thank you very much for listening. If anyone has any questions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
his parents were dead. So both his, well, his, his mother, uh, Martin's mother disappeared when he was a baby and was never heard from again. And his father uh, died of AIDS in the, in the early 1990s. So he had, he had no parents. I, I think if he had parents, he might not have gone through with any, you know, so, I mean, for exactly the reason you say, he might not have done it. But no, he was a, uh, he was an orphan. And his, his being an orphan very much, you know, conditioned the state in which he found himself that led him to the, to the surgery, I think. Other questions? Yeah. Yeah, I, I chose that epigraph because um, that particular quotation is not from any of his well-known texts. It's from an interview that he did with Studs Terkel uh, on the radio, and I, I happened to be listening to it uh, in a collection of Studs Terkel's uh, radio interviews that I had in the car with me when I was driving across the country and I was 23. Um, and uh, it was the first time... I knew who James Baldwin was, and I think I'd probably read a, an essay or, or something of his before. But this was an interview that he did with Studs Terkel in 1961, right before Another Country was published, a really crucial moment in his career. And he said this thing about how uh, he, he says in the interview um, that uh, Americans, white Americans, have gone to extraordinary lengths to avoid thinking about the black man, have gone to extreme lengths to avoid thinking about the black man, and that this avoidance explains many of the gaps in American culture. And he's, and then he says, uh, you know, un, you will never understand your own name until you understand mine. And I, I chose that because the, the title of the book is Your Face and Mine, and, 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 uh, and I think the two things are both equally true, that we, we will never understand our own names until we understand the other name, and we will never understand our own faces until we understand the face of the, of the person we're not. So that's the short answer. Yes, sir? Yeah. Could, could you speak up just a little bit? Sorry, because I've got, I've got water. Please. Please, sir. Uh, what in your personal history inspired you Yeah. Yeah. What in your background Right. What inspiration Yeah. Right. Right. You know, it, I mean, a lot of it, as I, as I read in this piece, it come, a lot of it really comes from my experience. This is a very autobiographical section of the book. Comes from that experience of witnessing the color line uh, in Baltimore in a very concrete and vivid way when I was a teenager, and um, and having no uh, no uh, rational explanation for this this state of affairs. Um, it was, you know, it wasn't even, you know, it wasn't even about what we would call racism. It was about the the existential divide between white people in Baltimore and black people in Baltimore. Um, 
so that you know it was the, it was that it was it was it was first of all it was the fact that that really haunted me when I was in high school and I had a lot of friends who were really immersed in hip hop culture and hip hop music at that time and I I had a number of friends who were white kids who put on the baggy jackets and the hats and the hoods and if you looked at them from behind you might not know who they were anymore and that was deliberate that was deliberate um you know people who didn't go to college to to make beats you know to become DJs um so that you know that that was the experience I had in high school and then I left Baltimore went to college did all these other things with my life and at a certain point in my life in my early 20s it became clear to me that the fact that an engagement with race is something that is really optional for white people in America there's something outrageous about that in the year this is the year you know 2000 you know uh th- there was something outrageous about the way that that I as a person subjectively had left even thinking about it and you know in the book the the narrator calls this state white dream time white dream time being the state of of you know la 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 existing in your life you know going down the aisle at whole foods or whatever it is um, and you're, it's like you're in a world in which people of color don't, don't exist in a meaningful way. So it was, you know, it was really, it was, a, it, was, it was the combination of those two things. It was wanting to write about high school and then also wanting to write about how foreign that time in my life felt to me. Um, and, you know, that experience of, well, what would happen if somebody decided that, you know, that feeling of racial alienation was so... Um, was something that was so unacceptable to them that they had to that they had to do the only thing they could do, which was was to literally, uh, literally go into the other, you know, to literally you know lose themselves and disappear into the other, which isn't a way of justifying the choice to have racial reassignment surgery because I think it's an insane choice, but I used it as a provocation. Yeah, that's the that's the best answer I can give. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. How did you, in retrospect, not necessarily then, yeah. how did you, in retrospect, view that? Was that an attempt to immerse themselves in the culture? Did you move the ball? Was it something that they just kind of, an affectation that they took on and then? Yeah, yeah. It's, you know... I think uh, it runs the gamut from, it ran the gamut at the time, it sure did, and it runs the gamut now, where you have people, I was talking to a reporter recently about white hip-hop, and about how white hip-hop has evolved and changed, and and about appropriation. And, you know, so in the early 90s, like, white hip-hop was Vanilla Ice, and stuff that was just sort of almost comic, because it was so wrong. And that, but then you had in the late '90s you had Eminem, who was a fully formed white MC, who came out of the black hip hop tradition, was very respected, had a black crew, uh, and was and is now a totally in, integral part of the world of hip hop. And then now you know you have uh, MCs like LP and Sage Francis and white rappers who are doing something, taking the art form and changing it to their own, you know, and giving it their own sort of nuances. So you see the whole, to my mind, what you see over time 
is the whole spectrum of responses and levels of engagement from the offensive to the silly to the you know the sort of fashion victim to the like totally serious in the tradition it's it's like jazz you know in jazz you have the in the history of jazz which is a much longer history so we can see it much more easily you have uh you have that whole spectrum of 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 engagements and responses and what you know to to my mind what that does is it is it is it and this is arguable but to my mind it enriches and enlarges the tradition that's an arguable point but that's my that's my perspective other questions big little yes Yeah, I kind of sound academic when I talk about it. I apologize for that. No, I mean, uh, you know, I started listening to hip hop when I was young, and and uh, you know, as the narrator says in the in this very autobiographical section, uh, "Do the right thing" was a totally transformative moment in my life. And I never, you know, I was never. I knew that I would never be any good at rapping, or you know, that I would never. I should never even try to like go down that road of being a. God knows a performer or, you know, doing any of those things. But, um, you know, that, that, that interview in spin magazine spin in 1990, put out this issue that I think it was guest edited by Spike Lee. And he had this big interview with Chuck D and Chuck D was talking about how white liberals are the problem. And that was a totally transformative moment in my life. Uh, and, and from then, you know, as I sort of, you know, as I, I sort of, um, can't you know listen to a lot of hip hop and really is sort of in, you know like when you listen to it enough and you know the songs and you can repeat the songs back it becomes like it becomes part of you in a certain way even you know even you know no matter how alien it is from your own experience and um and so you know i would say like it, you know it really it had a huge effect on me personally it it you know and it affects the way i write in you know, in some instances, and another thing I, I should say about that is that when I moved, when I after college I moved, I lived in Hong Kong for two years, and I was I was a teacher in Hong Kong, and you know, Hong Kong culture is you know, it's got the crazy action movies and it's got lots of interesting things, but I never really got into Hong Kong culture until I heard. Hong Kong hip hop, Cantonese hip hop. They had this amazing group called uh, LMF, the Lazy Lazy Motherfuckers. But all their lyrics were in, were in Cantonese, and Cantonese is a very good language for hip hop. And once I heard that, there was this powerful sense of like, wow, these, you know, like, you know, it was it was just this like mind blowing thing of how this, um, you know. It was the first time I really realized what hip hop was and as an art form when I saw it transported out of the American context, the things that were familiar to me, and I saw people doing it in Hong Kong, people doing it in Cambodia and all over the world and it it became clear to me that like this is a this is an art form with staying power right like this is an art form that has become a global language, and you see it everywhere in the world now you see graffiti and hip hop as like the dumb, you know, these are like the great gifts that America has given to the world in the second half of the 20th, 20th century after jazz is hip hop and graffiti. And you just can't, you know, I, I think Americans don't appreciate it. I think Americans honestly don't, you know, don't, uh, uh, don't respect enough how, how important that is, 
how important it is to the rest of the world and how it, it affects the way the rest of the world sees America. Hey, maybe one last, okay, a couple of, yeah. Yeah. Well, it was really it was because I had these very powerful experiences as a as a kid, as a teenager, and I really wanted this to be, you know, part of the novel to really be about that and to be a tribute to Baltimore because Baltimore doesn't get let's be honest, Baltimore doesn't get written about very much um as a kind of central arena in American life. And I think Baltimore, you know, the 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 situation of Baltimore is a central arena in American life. Um, and, the, you know, of course, The Wire really brought that home to a lot of people. Um, but, you know, I, it was just, you know, I wanted it to be very personal to me. And also, you know, New York is a city, New York is a, New York is a city that actually, to a large degree, functions more the way a city should. And Baltimore is a very broken city that doesn't function the way. I mean, Baltimore is a wonderful place, don't get me wrong. But Baltimore, structurally, economically, is a totally broken city. And, uh, you know, the, and there's something, I, I'm, I would never use the word tragic, but there's something, uh, there, you know, when I come to Baltimore, as I try to do as often as I can, there's a real sense of grief about the missed opportunities and the lost lives and the lost worlds in this town that are not commemorated, that are not recognized. And so, you know, Baltimore, is a, to me, Baltimore is a great place to write about because there's all these ghosts everywhere. You know, there's the ghosts of Billie Holiday on the west side in Baltimore's, Baltimore's Harlem, which is now totally, almost totally disappeared. And there's, um, you know, there's the ghosts. There's also, for me, just personally, there's the ghosts of the bands I used to listen to when I was here in the 1990s. So there's lots of, you know, any place that has a lot of kind of echoes and a lot of, uh, you know, sort of places, sort of gaps to fill is a place that, naturally for me I want to write about it because it's like you can sort of put your own you know bring something to life there whereas New York everybody writes about New York you know who wants to hear more about New York City New York has its own script writers you know it has its own publicists Baltimore needs a better publicist not not me but some, you know somebody needs to be like Baltimore's publicist yeah Emil yeah. This isn't really what happened. <laughs> this is a friend of my mother here, <laughs> Ring, a ringer in the crowd. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I have to confess, I didn't give mom a draft. I gave her the, I gave her the book when it was finished. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't, um, yeah, I, I mean, if, if, if I had written something in which someone was recognizably a character uh, and the, the one there, there is one person in this book who might recognize himself as a character. Um, is a, a, a radio host in Baltimore who I used to work for, um, uh, and maybe I should have cleared it with him. <laughs> but uh, there's no, you know, if there was somebody else who was like a really recognizable character, then maybe I would, I would do that. But, but in general, 
you know, I just, I give the finished thing and I say, you know, you can have whatever response you, you, you like. Maybe one more question. Yeah, or two, a couple more questions. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah it is. Um you know, it's my for for me like, you know, sort of a little bit like the narrator in this in this in this book. Um you know, I went to Hong Kong, I got very involved in re- learning Chinese and studying Chinese literature. That was, you know, sort of part of my journey after the after my time in in Baltimore. Um and uh i have a i have a multiracial family my wife is part jewish part indian like from india um and so my children are my children are actually quite different in appearance one of them is one of them is quite recognizably a person of color and the other is fair-haired and blue-eyed so you know this this um these contrasts and tension not tensions, but these contrasts are very much alive within my own family and my sort of broader family, which includes Orthodox Jews, Indians, uh, you know, all kinds of different, different, uh, 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 populations are represented. So that, you know, that's, that's, that's part of it. And also, um, you know, I've been practicing Buddhism for 20 years and, you know, at first when I, when I, um, when I got involved in, in, in Buddhism, I was very naive about the cultural part of of practicing Buddhism, and I just felt like I was just another person on the road to enlightenment, and, you know, I was going to be a monk and shave my head and put on the robes, and I was just going to be, you know, just like the Zen masters in the old days. And, you know, it's only over time as a process of traveling and becoming more self-aware that um, I came to understand that my own interest in this religion that was so profoundly not me was also a kind of an ethnic or cultural reassignment. It was a way of uh, trying to vacate or flee from my normative religious heritage. Um, and, you know, now I'm, I'm comfortable with that. That's just part of the, you know, that's just, that's, that's, it's not so much good or bad. It's just sort of part of the, part of the reality of, um, you know, of inhabiting white subjectivity, you might say. It's part of the reality of just of the, you know, circumstances I was brought up in. Um, and, you know, so it's just, it's sort of a, it's sort of a process of recognition and acceptance. But also, you know, there's this recognition and this acceptance within the larger phrase, within the larger frame of outrage, because the racism in the world hasn't changed. You know, or hasn't has has uh, metastasized, shall we say? It has changed, but it has not gone away. It just takes on new and more, you know, and new virulent forms. So you know, it's that sort of personally looking at myself and accepting things about myself that I wouldn't have accepted maybe ten years ago. And then on the other hand, this sense that the uh, you know this is the dialogue about race is one that needs desperately to continue and not occur in such feeble fits and starts in American culture the way it does now. Yeah. Um, good question. I mean, there are, 
there are characters in the novel who were who were born black. Um, that you know that's not the circumstance of this particular book. I've written other fiction that has African American characters who you know didn't come from anywhere you know who were who were not non surgically uh, uh, you know uh, you know normative African American characters. Um, you know, and there's a whole complicated conversation about who gets to tell those stories and who gets to write in those voices. And my response to that, as it is, you know, in this book, successfully or not successfully, is you take the tension and you take the uncomfortableness and you take the questions and you just put it on the page. You don't sort of suppress it. You just you just put it put it out there. Yeah, I think you had a question. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. 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 I'm so glad you asked that question. There's no no question in my mind that this book is part of the white liberal problem. <laughs> um, you know that, and that you know, and that that me standing here is is in some sense part of the problem. And the only thing I can say about that is that um, you know we're talking about it, and um, you know the response that I'm getting to the book is uh, you know is is from reviews and things people have said to me is that it makes people uncomfortable and that's 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 really what i wanted you know was not to um you know pretend that i'm going to like sweep down like a fireball and sort of destroy the normative conversation uh but to uh have a certain amount of the of a kind of a alienation experience in the book that is have a have a book that you're you're reading it and you're not quite not quite sure what it is you have in front of you. You know, there's a little, you know, the book is asking you questions that you can't answer. That's the book I wanted to write. And some people are really, you know, giving me, you know, pushing back and saying, you know, why didn't you say this? Why didn't you say that? Uh, uh, why, um, you know, why does the book include this or not include that? Or, or and, and that's what I wanted, is to have a book that's a little bit jagged, like a little bit imperfect, so that, you know, it challenges the reader to... And and doesn't just sort of smooth it over and make it nice kind of NPR style. Yeah. One last question. Yeah. Sir. Sure. Yeah. 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 You know, I started listening to jazz because I had, I had friends in college who were who were sort of diehard jazz fans, 
and you know in the kind of like the sort of stereotypical like uh bohemian beatnik kind of like coltrane you know intellectual yeah um that kind of, and so you know that's where i started and then i started listening to it more and more as i became an adult and now uh jazz is part of my everyday life it's the music i listen to the most i play jazz guitar very badly uh but i still play i study it um and the experience you know jazz is the um jazz is an art form that is you know because of the kind of the improvisational nature of it it's like it starts new every time you do it in a certain way and in that sense you know everybody can have access to it in a certain way and it it was, i've i've learned so much as a as a human being and as an artist by studying improvisation studying the way that jazz works and also sort of getting beyond the kind of stereotyping about jazz and studying the the intricacy and difficulty of post bebop jazz and you know and when i so when i learn a composition by Thelonious Monk or something it's like you 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 have this you you kind of you can see if you learn the music and then have to replicate it in improvisation you see the kind of the bones of the art form laid out before you in a certain way and it's just incredibly you know it's like you know talking about hip hop and graffiti is great gifts america has given to the world you know jazz is also this this just this great gift of american culture there's nothing like it there's never been anything like it and um you know it's just this tremendous sense of honor and respect and of wanting to carry on the tradition uh and, but also sort of for me there's a, you know there's also this sense of like of of being aware of how racially fraught the history of jazz is and one of the interesting things about that is that you see in the history of jazz the kind of dialogues between black and white artists that are absent from a lot of other american art forms you know american uh, american literature has wonderful african american tradition wonderful uh white tradition but not a lot of dialogue between the two but in jazz because of the nature of the art form uh the the dialogue is there in the middle and that's a tremendous inspiration to me it's a tremendous inspiration to look at the the collaborations of duke ellington and billy strayhorn miles davis and bill evans miles davis and gil evans um mingus and and you know and and uh uh these these players you know and to me like that's and you know of course there's tons of racial friction in jazz and there's a lot of very hateful language and a lot of resentment and a lot of bifurcation a lot of debate um but there's also the sense of like we are all family and that's not present anywhere else in american culture in quite the same way so that's you know that's the the core inspiration is the sense that you know in a certain way on the bandstand the musicians of different places are all in it together and there's you know so it's incredibly inspirational to me even though i'll never make it to the bandstand myself <laughs> maybe one day uh thank you so much for coming